0: We are in Romans chapter seven. We're going to begin reading in verse number one in just a moment. But uh, what, what we're going to talk about tonight—it's—it's uh, it's a little difficult to kind of put in a nutshell. We're—we're we're really going to be talking about worldview issues, and the—the the, the things that Paul is laying out for us here are, are things that that every Christian should understand. We—we uh, we, we should all know these things, but there are Christians who don't don't know them or don't fully understand them, and. Uh, there are Christians who, be, who are believers in Jesus, they, they might love Jesus, they, they might love the Bible, and the, uh, yet they perhaps have some filters through which they view the world that are not biblical and, and aren't godly. And, and that's an important thing to know because we need to ask ourselves, what if that's us? What if, what if that's me? What, what if I'm one of those people? What if I'm viewing things uh, in this world or in my life around me in an unbiblical way? Uh, whether it's my own issues or, or other people's issues. And, and that viewing in the wrong way is causing me to make bad, bad decisions, not even realizing that, uh, that what I'm doing is not ultimately honoring to the Lord uh, or, or helpful. So as we look at this passage, it might be something where uh, it'd be easy to look at it and say, well, that was, that was kind of interesting, but, 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 but not realize how foundational this really is that we're talking about. And and the thing about foundational things is they're not exciting typically. You know, you you don't when you drive by a new building that's being constructed and you drive by that as they put the foundation down, you don't drive by that construction site and, and, and stop and then and stand and look in awe at the foundation. You know you don't you don't do that. Wow! Look at that foundation. Look at that cement. Look how well laid that foundation is. Look at the corners; they they're set at perfect ninety degree angles. You, you don't you don't think any of those things, and yet everything else that is to be built depends on that foundation. The the man who inspects the ground that a building is being built upon, or inspects the foundation of the building, he has to make sure. That, that that foundation is going to support everything else that is going to be built on that site. So when we talk about foundational things, that's that's what a worldview is for us. The foundation matters because everything else sits on your worldview. All of your decisions, the way you look at life, the way you look at the world, the way you approach your problems, everything is, is, is affected by your worldview and that foundation. So... That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So, so let, let me try to make sense of this. Let's, let's read Romans uh, chapter 7, beginning in, in verse 1. Uh, Paul writes this He says, Do you not know, brothers? For I speak to those who know the law. A little, little side note here the audience that Romans is intended for is people who are familiar with the law, they're, they're, they're familiar with the Old Testament. It doesn't necessarily mean they were Jewish, but they knew the law, which means that probably a lot of them were Jewish or, or they were at least Gentile converts to Judaism who had converted to Christianity. He says, Do you not know, brothers, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? Don't you know this? The, the law is only applicable to you as long as you live? Then he explains, verse 2, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding her husband. So then she will be called an adulteress if she marries another man while her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she would not be an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, now let me just first say this. People uh, will will miss the point on this passage sometimes because... Uh, I'll say, uh, I want you to understand, this passage is not about divorce. Uh, This passage doesn't mention divorce. This passage uh, doesn't even have divorce in mind at all. It it only has two situations. A a married woman who marries another man while while she's still married to her first husband, who's living. And then a married woman whose husband dies and then she marries another man. Those are the only two situations this passage has in view. What Paul is doing, he's not trying to teach on divorce or anything like that. He's using an analogy, uh, using the, the picture of a married woman. It's not a teaching on divorce. The Bible has lots of passages about marriage, divorce, and remarriage and all that. It's a big topic and maybe we'll cover that at more depth in another time, but but not today. Right now, Uh, we're trying to understand Romans 7, and that's not what he's talking about here. So to deal with that would be more of a distraction for tonight. I I will say this, however, the the biblical teaching on marriage is extremely simple, but life is very complicated. And so, therefore, when we try to approach that subject, we should be thoughtful and mindful of the complexities of life. So anyway, we're going to hold off on studying that topic tonight, but but if you can't wait, then I tell you this, go do your own study. Uh, if you want to study marriage, divorce, and remarriage, then go look up all the biblical passages about marriage and do your own Bible study. You can do that. You don't have to wait for me to do that. You can get in the Word yourself. But I want to just use this as a little bit of a teaching moment. It's like I, I heard about a group of high school students who, who were enrolled in a, uh, in a program in their school where they would work at various uh, businesses in the area, and they would teach teenagers how to work, expose them to different various uh, career opportunities, and this particular group was working at a preschool, and, and one day this, this uh, group was with the class. They were outside the, the classroom, and while they were walking along, the, the, pre- the preschool teacher saw a butterfly, and she stopped, and, and, and she said, class, do you see this butterfly? And, and then she started telling them about the butterfly and how it used to be a, a different creature and how, to, how it metamorphosed into a butterfly. And then, then she turned to the high school students who, was there, who were there learning from her about this whole process. And she said to them, she said, this is what's called a teaching moment. Life, life is full of teaching moments. She said, when you, when you reach those, it's good to stop and teach the kids something because it applies to what they're walking through at that moment. So they'll be more ready to receive it. Well, This is a teaching moment. And here's the teaching moment, and this is important for us to understand. Sometimes we as human beings miss the point. We sometimes miss the point. You could read Romans 7 and think that the first three verses are all about marriage, but that's really not what it's about. This passage is not about marriage. It's an analogy. Uh, What we we have to know is that the author of Romans, who uh, ultimately really is the Holy Spirit is trying to build a case is trying to explain a very big concept uh, and there the fact is there are things that just don't fit in little pithy little statements that, that and the things that God's trying to communi- communicate to us there There's some things in in our world of social media some things that just won't fit in a tweet you know even though, even though they've expanded it to I think two hundred and eighty eight characters there's some things that you just can't fit into two hundred and eighty eight characters. And that's what we're called to do, especially in places like like the Book of Romans, because there's so much meat there, or, or 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 in the Book of Hebrews, one of my favorites. But you you know, a lot of people you don't understand the Book of Hebrews because you're you're looking for uh, what you're doing is you're looking at random verses to to pick out those verses instead of trying to understand the entire concept or the flow of thought in the major passages, not just a verse. So this is a good thing for us to learn. This is part of this teaching moment for us, and that is that we should study passages, not just verses. We need to understand context. So anyway, so as we look at Romans 7, then what is Paul's point in Romans 7? He, he's saying that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. That, that, was, that was in verse 1. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Then he says, here's my proof Uh, here's my example here's my analogy when a man is married to a woman the law applies to their marriage until he passes away then she's free from the law and she's free to marry another the law has dominion over the man as long as he lives but when he dies it no longer applies so he describes two situations if the woman becomes a widow and she gets remarried that's okay because she's released from the law of her husband Then there's a woman who's still still married to a living husband, and she gets married again. That's not okay. That's called adultery. So uh, this is drawing from biblical principles that death breaks the ties between spouses. And what he's saying here, what he's trying to apply is, this means something about you and me and our relationship to God and our relationship to the law. So this is far deeper than a a tweet or a Facebook post. And And this might be, you know, uninteresting to some people, but this is foundational. So this is really rather profound. So so the parallel issue relates how we get saved and how we relate to God. So in verse four, Paul starts to unpack how to apply this analogy. He says this. So, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be married to another. To him who has been raised from the dead so that we may bear fruit for God. So we, now we, we talked last week, and, and even, even the, the study before that, we, we talked about how there, there's this idea that in Adam we all die, and in Christ we all live. Adam represents uh, all, all of us, and so in Adam we die. Christ represents, er, through, through baptism, we identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we positionally change who we are and how we relate to God. And our new head is Jesus. He's my new representative. Now, here he's saying that through the death of Jesus, we have also become dead to the law. Christianity is based on the idea that Jesus' physical death accomplishes everything for us. It wasn't just an example. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it actually affects me. I just put my faith and trust in him. And, and then the thing he did at the cross uh, impacts my life for eternity. And this is why Christians, no matter what our circumstances are, we should always be thankful and grateful. Uh, because there are real, tangible benefits. Not just, it wasn't just an example. So, so what is Paul saying here? What he's trying to say is, we are like the woman. Our dead husband is the law. Our new husband is Jesus. This is the concept that he's trying to get across. That's the application. That's the analogy and how it parallels with our worldview. I'm I'm dead to the law. I'm alive now and married to Christ. So in fact, this is, and that idea of being married to Christ is carried all throughout the New Testament. It's a constant theme, not just from Paul, but it's a constant theme in the New Testament that we are the bride of Christ. Even Jesus himself told parables about how he was the bridegroom and and he's how he's coming and we're the betrothed it's just beautiful stuff so with with all that said then that raises some questions for me the as i read verse four i think the first question is if i'm dead to the law uh, and therefore not married to it any longer how was i married to it before that's a good question. This is an analogy using marriage, right? So how is it that I was married to the law? Well, I think that would be through sin. I think sin sort of married me to the law in the same way that that in the same sense that if I get a ticket for speeding, then I'm now married to that thing. So I have to pay this ticket. I have to pay the debt. In other words, when I get the ticket when I Sin, when I commit that, that, that crime that, that carries a penalty, I am now legally connected to that action. And so I'm married to the law in the sense that my sin uh, gives me a legal obligation to the law. Does this, this make sense? It, it was my sin that brought me into this irrevocable encounter with the law that was going to bring penalty upon my life. And this is a perfect parallel of my relationship to God because of sin. I sin and I bring the consequence of death into my life. So sin and death, that's my marriage to the law. So here's the next question. In what sense am I dead to the law? What does Paul mean by this? Well, there's a couple ways we can look at that. One is, uh, one way that might help us understand is if we consider the death penalty. After a person, this seems like common sense, but I think it's, it helps us to understand a little bit. After a person pays the death penalty, they don't have to pay again, right? I mean, you're dead. It's over. It's done. Uh, And so when we understand that, Jesus paid the death penalty for my sin. He stood in my place. He, He paid my penalty. Therefore, I cannot be forced to suffer again for the things for which he has already paid. Because the penalty is already done. The, the penalty's already been paid. So, so there's that. Romans 6 talked about that. Uh, it used, uses the phrase, uh, we're, trying, and what, you know, we're trying to tie these different ideas together through Romans so we can understand the book of Romans, not just individual passages, entire passages here. Uh, but Romans 6 says that we were baptized into Jesus' death. We just talked about that. And in Romans 6 two it says that we died to sin. Romans 6, 8, it says that we died with Christ. So my death is to sin, uh, to the law, and in other passages in Scripture, to the world, to myself, and then, and then I'm alive to Christ. There's this real change of life, of position, of everything. Then it says that at the end of that verse 4, it says that we should bear fruit to God. Now, this is important because this then, the, this is the purpose of my salvation. I'm saved by grace, but I'm saved unto works. I'm saved by grace, not not by works, but I'm saved unto works. That's the fruit of God. I'm saved for something, not just saved from something. Uh, Our our words are are not, uh, excuse me, our works are, are not done out of fear, you know, like I'm trying to please God, and if I please Him, then I get to go to heaven. If I don't please Him, then He's going to send me to hell. That's just really a very confused idea. When somebody says something like that, I just, I just really like to reboot the whole conversation and start over. Uh, I want to go back to the very beginning of the gospel because they're missing something. Somebody, somebody who says, oh, Christians only obey, obey God because of a fear of hell. And that's sometimes that's an accusation that people make about Christianity, but I just want to look at them and say, man, you're, If that's what you're building upon, your foundation is all messed up there. You're not talking about Christianity. That's not the gospel. That's that's not the truth. Did Jesus say, if you fear me, you'll obey my commands? No, that's not what he said at all. He said, if you what? If you love me, obey my commands. And the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. And it says in that context, it says that fear involves the idea that I'm going to be punished at some future time for these things. However, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God delivers us from that fear and calls us into a fruit bearing relationship of love and obedience to him. And I would say this, this connection between love and fruit, this connection between relationship and bearing fruit in your life. If you're lacking fruit, if you're lacking godly works in your life, then what you're really lacking is relationship. The the lack of fruit is just a symptom of a problem, a a sign that that there's something lacking in my relationship with Jesus. So, So, you know, say you meet a Christian, someone who's struggling with sin. So often all you need to say to that person is, is ask him, have you just gone to the prayer closet? Have you got on your knees and said, Lord, this sin is breaking my relationship with you in my heart. I need to be restored to you. And in so doing, they're they're dealing with it at the very root of the problem because it's not a behavioral problem. It's a relational problem between us and the Lord. And, uh, and, you know, I've had friends over the years uh, who, who love Jesus and Maybe I might see them once every year or two or whatever. And and you know, when you see somebody you haven't seen for a long time, that you 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 see them and they say, Hey Dave, how's it going? You know, and I'm like, Hey, I'm doing good, how are you doing? But then, you know, I have certain friends that just go a little deeper. Maybe I haven't seen him for two years, but they'll look at, at me and they say, Hey, hey, how how's your walk with the Lord? You know, and in that moment, I don't know about you, but Sometimes you get a little defensive, and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of a personal question right there. But, and, and I'm not saying that you should go up to strangers and ask them how their walk with the Lord is. Uh, sometimes you have a, a place in someone's life uh, to ask that kind of question, and sometimes you don't. It depends on your relationship with them. B- but that question is a question that gets right to the heart of the issue. It, it just gets right to the heart of it, because how is your relationship with Jesus Truly I'm not talking about how you fake it, how, what kind of mask you wear, you know, not in your fantasy world, but in reality, how is your relationship with God? How's your walk? Because the truth is, if your walk is good, the fruit will come. And and, and sometimes if you're like me, we, we don't like hearing that question because it forces us to be honest about some things that are going off, uh, you know, kind of going off the rails in in my heart, rather than being able, when I'd just rather just ignore them. So, based on Romans 7, what's my relationship with the law now? Well, he says, I'm dead to it. However, this does get a little complicated, because, you know, I look at the Old Testament law, and I think, "Am, am I really dead to this thing? Well, I mean, what about the part where it says, don't murder? Does that mean I can murder because I'm dead to the law? Well, of course not. That's not what it says. There are certain moral laws. There are certain things that carry through that will be true for all people at all times. And there are certain things that were written there specifically for, the, for Israel. And we realize that, that, that this was to teach us a lesson. It was a tutor to bring us to Christ. Uh, but now we can say I'm dead to the law. And Paul's going to get more into this in Romans 14 and he'll address this topic more fully and we'll, we'll look at it then. But, but, but in summary, I think when we talk about our relationship as a follower of Jesus to the law, here, here's how I treat the Old Testament law. So you know, you're know, you just reading through it on your own personal time in the word. Here's, what I, here's my approach. I learn from the law, but I'm not under it. I learn from the law, but I'm not under it. I think that's a great summary. We, we can't go to the extreme of casting out the Old Testament as, as if it's somehow inferior. It's not. It's foundational. However, I also don't want to start acting as though Christ has not delivered me from, the, the, from sin and death and the law. I, I don't want to forget that. I learned from the law, but I'm not under it. Let, let's continue in verse 5. When we were in the, fle- when we were in the flesh... The passions of sin, through the law, worked in our members to bear fruit, leading to death. Now, I want to read that verse again from a different version. From I want to read it from the ESV because it helps uh, translates it in a way it helps communicate a concept that Paul is using here. And and it's not that like I just read from the from the modern English version, and that's a good translation because in the original Greek, it's not particularly uh, a, a strong word there because it just uses uh, through sin, but but I want you to see the difference. In, v- in verse 5 in ESV, it says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, and here's the word, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And, and, and so there is that sense in the, in the, stru- uh, the uh, structure of the sentence uh, where it has this idea of this being aroused uh, by the law. So he, he says, we, First of all, he says, We were in the flesh. So, so that's past tense, right? So he, he when he uses this phrase in the flesh here, I think he's talking about before we were saved. Now later on, he uses the phrase in the flesh as a thing that still abides with him that he's still wrestling with. But but here, excuse me, here he says we were in the flesh. This is about who you were. You, you were just you were just carnal. You were living in the flesh. You were dominated by the flesh. This is. This is when you were not yet born again. You're not in right relationship with God. You know, when you talk about being born again. Of course, that makes you think of what Jesus said to Nicodemus in the book of John. And in response to the idea of being born again, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a, a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus' answer, John 3, verses 5 through 7, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus is communicating about two births. One birth is natural, in the flesh. You're you're surrounded in the womb by water, then you're born. You know, the water breaks and all that, and I know it's not... I know it's not literal water, but John wasn't worried about modern scientific terminology. You know, somebody reads as a, well, that's not entirely accurate. You know, it's just like, I know, but John was not worried about trying to give us modern scientific terminology at the time. So, so one birth is the natural birth. And then there's the spirit birth. The spirit birth is the new life that we find in Christ. This is is the idea of being born again, and and there's really just two births. Uh, Some people think that the water birth it refers to is talking about baptism. I don't don't think that's what he's talking about at all, Uh, because if it it refers to water baptism, then really you're talking about three births, because then you have the natural birth, uh, which is in the flesh, then you'd have water birth, which is baptism, and then you'd then, he, then you have separate from that, he says, the spirit birth. So, uh, and that doesn't make sense to me. There's really just two births, your initial physical flesh birth and then the spiritual birth being born again. This, this is, as I said, this is foundational stuff. I know it's not super exciting, but it's very powerful and it's very, very important. So let's get back to Romans chapter 7, verse 5, uh, because I want to get back to that phrase I drew attention to. I actually pulled, drew attention to it a little earlier than what I meant to He said, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. Now, let's stop there for a second. Aroused by the law? My sinful passions were aroused by the law? Now, as I said, in the Greek, you know, it doesn't seem nearly as strong as that because it just uses a word that says says through. But but what, what he's conveying here, it seems that what he's saying is that my sin, somehow my sin met the law. My sinful desires met the rules of the law, and my desires to sin became even stronger. I mean, what's up with that? I think it's really interesting. It's not not that my sins were created by the law. The the law didn't make me want to sin. It simply put a magnifying glass on those sinful things. This is actually explained more when we get to verse 8 and so I'm going to wait till we get there to explain a little bit more. However, let's do keep that in mind as we move forward, that the law somehow arouses my sinful passions. We'll come back to that. Uh, then Paul says that these sinful passions were at work and are members to bear fruit to death. Now again, just like we, in, verse, in chapter 6, uh, members here just means body parts, literal physici- physical body parts, arms and legs and eyes and ears and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's what members means. That's a very typical usage of the word members in the New Testament just to mean our body. And I know it seems clumsy in the English, but that's sort of the nature of translation sometimes. It was originally written in another language, and we're just trying to understand it in our language to the best of our ability. Uh, but, but Paul says that our, our sinful passions bore fruit to death. Now Now as a Christian... I'm born again, and I have the fruit of righteousness. And that's, a, that's two eternal treasures. That's to eternal reward. That's to eternal life. However, before I'm saved, and, and I'm in the flesh, and I have my sins piling up, and they're bearing fruit, uh, w- which is, which is going to be more and more wrath, because that's what Paul said in Romans 1, that we're storing up wrath. Then it says in verse 6 as, as we go on. This is all going to come together here in a minute. Verse 6, he says, but now... So he's not talking about in the flesh. He's not talking about, he's talking about after you're born again now. But now we are delivered from the law, having died to things in which we were bound so that we may serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter of the law. All right, new concept, new worldview uh, thing here. Christians can view things as either the newness of the spirit or the oldness of the letter of the law. Those are two different ways of living and serving. The oldness of the the letter, the newness of the spirit. Now, I think what he's talking about here is the old covenant and the new covenant. We we read about it in in Jeremiah, and you you can go back to Jeremiah 31 if you want. I'm just going to read one verse there, but we're going to go back hundreds and hundreds of years before Paul. And this is what I think Paul had in mind. He says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So he's talking about a, a new covenant. It says, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So Jeremiah speaks of a, a new covenant, and the new covenant was anticipated prophetically, and then Jesus shows up and he fulfills it. He gives us the new covenant. what he said. At the Last Supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And, and, and then when we respond to that new covenant, we become born again. We have new spiritual life. And, and we're talking about a life change, a change of everything. So you go up to a friend and you're like, hey, man, do you, do you know Jesus? And they're like, oh, oh yeah, man, I, I go to church. No, 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 no. Do you know Jesus? Oh, sure, sure. I have a Bible. No, no. Do, do, you, do you know Jesus? Dude, I'm a a member of of a church. I even tithe sometimes. No, no, I'm asking, are you born again? And in that conversation, what you're trying to communicate is this concept of the old carnal life before Christ and then the new birth and the new life in Christ. Not just new doctrines, not just new teachings, not just new ideas, not just new beliefs, but a new life in Christ that we have that goes just beyond what words can explain. So he says, we serve not in the oldness of the letter of the law. And I think serving the oldness of the the letter of the law is thinking, okay, I'm, I'm trying to obey Old Testament law and I'm constantly failing. I have a life of constant failure, constant disappointment. I'm constantly not good enough. I constantly... Don't measure up. And there are a lot of Christians that live in that place because they're trying to live up to laws that they have imposed and they constantly feeling like they are failing and that they, they're a disappointment and they, they don't measure up, you know. But and what's happening when you're living under the, uh, 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 under the oldness of the letter of the law is uh, I'm watching these rules that come my way from the outside and then I realize that internally. I, I just want to fight against them. I know what's right, but inside I'm thinking, I don't even want to do this. It, it, I'm carnal in that, in that moment. However, serving in the newness of the Spirit is an entirely different kind of thing. Serving in the newness of the Spirit happens from the inside out. Serving in, under the, letter of the, uh, of the oldness of the letter of the law, that's trying to make it from the outside in. The, the law comes at me and says, you should do this. And I'm like, I don't feel like it, but I'll try because I know it's right. That's living under the oldness of, of the letter. But however, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, he says, you should do this. And because he changes me and makes me a new person. Now I go, I know I want to, Lord. That's what I want. It's a change in the whole quality of goodness that, that that's inside of us. So. I think another question we have to ask when we read this is why why would I need to be delivered from the law in the first place? I think that's a good question. That's what verse six, 6 says. It says we have been delivered from the law. Well, I'm going to give you two or three different reasons. One is I need to be delivered I need to be delivered from the law because the law is for sinners. As Paul has explained earlier, the entire purpose of the law It's for sinners. Now, you kind of know this. 1 Timothy 1.9 says, And we know that the law is not given for a righteous person, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, and for sinners. Now, I think you can understand it this way. Everybody here, if you have children, you can understand this. If you have the perfect child who always does perfectly all the time, and you're leaving the house, and you say, I'll be back in two hours... You know, most parents, you're thinking uh, of all the things you need to be telling them to do or what, and what not to do and all these things, but you have the perfect child, so why bother? You have the perfect child, so it's just like, I'll be back. <laughs> Close the door and you leave. You, you leave confident that everything will be fine when you return home. Let me put it this way. The number of rules you give your child is in direct proportion to how much you trust them right isn't that true the more unruly your child the more rules you give right the law is for the sinner that's what he's talking about here. The more messed up you are, the more rules I have to give you as I'm stepping out. The rules are for the rule breakers. The more unruly you are, the more rules you need. And as a sinner, as somebody who's broken in my, in my humanity because of my sin, I am a rule breaker, so I, therefore I need the rules. This is what it means when it says the law is for sinners. Nevertheless, I need to be delivered from it because I need to be delivered... For even my need for the law, something is wrong with me that I even need you to tell me what to do, God, and what not to do. Also, the second thing is I need to be delivered from the law because the law condemns me. When I see the law and commit these moral crimes against God, I'm now standing condemned and I need deliverance from it. You know, in that moment, I'm like the guy who's caught red-handed and and I'm going to court and they're going to convict me. I'm going to get the sentence. I I need some deliverance. I can't plead insanity. I can't say it wasn't me. It's all proven beyond a doubt. It's all right there. So I need deliverance because the law is, is condemning me. Third thing is I also need deliverance because the law can't save me. It can condemn me. But it can't save me. It can't deliver me because once the law is broken, it's broken. The law can't fix that. It's like James says, if, if you've broken one, then you've broken all of them. You know, I, I like to describe the law uh, like it's a 10-linked chain, you know. And, and I'm hanging over the precipice of hell, hanging by this 10-linked chain. Now, if you're hanging from that chain over, over, over the, uh, the, the pit of hell... and and you're hanging from that chain, how many links can you afford to break uh, before you're in trouble? You you can't break any. Because you, you hold on the chain, but if you break one link, then the whole chain falls apart. So it is with the law. All have sinned. The Bible says if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In Romans 8, 3, and we'll get there later, it says that the law was weak through the flesh. Listen, if I could obey the law perfectly, I could work my way to heaven, but nobody does that and nobody can do that because of the weakness of our flesh. So I need to be delivered from this because the whole system is based on my brokenness. I wouldn't need the law if I could obey the law. Because, I mean, if, if I was good, if I if I could obey the law, I wouldn't even need it. I, I would just do good. But the whole system is based on our brokenness. I, ha- I have to get out from under this, underneath this thing because I'm condemned. So, So how do I do that? How do I get from underneath it? The answer is what Paul says. I die to it. See, we die to our sin when we die to Christ. And if I'm dead to my sin, that means that I'm dead to the law. Put it this way if the purpose of the law is for sinners, then when Christ removes my sin, I have no need for the law. I can't, I don't have to rely on the law for my righteousness anymore. I, 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 I'm not only dead to sin, but I'm also dead to the, to the law that condemns my sin. The law has, put it this way, the law has no dominion over me. I don't have to answer for anything because you don't answer to the law for doing nothing wrong. But because we have been made clean, we've been made uh, given his righteousness, now we stand there and we 're dead to the law. The law has no dominion over us. just like the death of the woman delivered uh, 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 excuse me, the death of the husband delivered the woman from the marriage, so the death of myself to the law separates from the, me from this whole thing, and I'm reborn in Christ. In Christ, I have a total death to the law, to sin, to self, and to the world. These are all different passages of scripture that unpack these ideas. And in Christ, I have total life in the spirit of God, a new life of fellowship with the Lord, eternal glory, and I'll never die. And, and I just have to say, if you need this, you just need to ask. If, 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 you, if you say, Lord, I have been laboring in my Christian life under rules and rules and rules and rules, just wanting to kick against them, feeling burdened, feeling like it's coming from the outside in instead of coming from the inside out. Well, then you just need to be born again and then God will work it from the, from the, from the inside out. So then we've talked about the oldness of the letter of the law. What then is the newness of the spirit? And I mean, you can see when we talk about the le- oldness of the letter law, why we need to get out from underneath that because we're broken and we, we can't make it happen. We can't make it with the law. So, but walking in the newness of the Spirit is different. It's not, first of all, it's not based on our feelings. Walking in the newness of the Spirit, living your life in the Spirit, does not mean that at every moment, you're led by urges from the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not discounting that the Holy Spirit can, in fact, give you leading and guidance in any moment that can and does happen. However, there are frequent times when you're not aware that the Holy Spirit is giving you any specific direction. He's not urging you. He's not nudging you in a certain direction. Uh, but, but you can still be walking in the Spirit because you're walking in the goodness of God and you're walking out love in your life. So, so we're not necessarily led by urges. God can do that and, and he does that and we shouldn't discount that. But, but what I'm saying is I don't see that as the moment by moment experience of the Christian because, because here's what, I think God wants us to make decisions. If everything is, everything is based on, well, I mean, just need an urging from the Holy Spirit, then I don't really have to ever make a decision other than am I gonna listen to him or not? Uh, and, and if God didn't want us to make decisions, he, he would not have given us the book of Proverbs. Because he, he, he doesn't say forget wisdom, just wait for me to say something and do what I say. We need wisdom because we, we do make choices and, and God wants us to make choices, just like you want your children to make actual choices in life. I mean, He wants us to get to the place where we don't have to wait for Him to say things, but we know His heart, we know His will. It's like, I, I, I always think of it like this. Uh, you want your children to get to a place where they don't have to be directed by you to do everything. You know? So, so, like your child is in the kitchen and all of a sudden you hear this noise and they, and they call out to you and say, Oh, great mother, I have spilled milk all over the floor. What should I do? And you say, Well, get a rag and clean it up. You, you don't want them having to come to you for every decision. Oh, oh great father, should I wear this today? You what you want is for them to be able to come to a place where they say, I have spilled milk on the floor. I know that it is the will of my parents to clean this mess up without being told to. Can I get an amen from all the parents in here? That's what he wants us to make decisions. He wants us to walk in the spirit. Uh, walking by your feelings and emotions is not newness of the spirit it's, it's not feelings based or, or urged based living. Second, walking in the newness of the spirit is not gift focused it's not, it's not functioning in the gifts of the spirit in every waking moment. Th- there is an element of the gifts of the spirit being active in our lives and we should be open to his moving at any moment. but we're talking about everyday living and most of your daily life is not exercising gifts of the spirit. It's basically being led by the Spirit in the sense of these new internal desires that now I want to do what is right, and I have this internal awareness of, a, of this relationship with God, and I have a desire to serve Him, and, and that's the difference. That's, you know, that's the first thing you notice when you actually get saved, especially if, you've, if you get saved at an older age when you've had ample opportunity to sort of flesh out the flesh, you know? Because now all of a sudden you, you look at your life, you, you know exactly what, what the flesh life is about. And then you get saved and you're like, Lord, I, I love you. I, I know you. I want to walk in you. I want to walk with you. I want to serve you. It's a change of his desire. There's a, there, that's the newness of the spirit. It's how we serve. But some people, they misuse these terms, the oldness of the letter and the newness of the spirit. And I I just want to guard us against that. I I think some think that the oldness of the letter of the law means anything the generation before me used to do as Christians. And so if they sang hymns and I don't like hymns, then hymns are the oldness of the letter. You know, so, man, those are just, they're just old wineskins. Well, and they, they use and abuse these biblical terms and just attack whatever some generation before them did. For others... The newness of the spirit uh, would be just like a certain vibe that you have. For example, you know, here at Restoration Life Church, we tend to dress down instead of dressing up. Uh, And and if somebody shows up in a three-piece suit and they're going to to preach in their three-piece suit, and if you're like, man, that's the oldness of the letter, you know, no, no, it's not. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just a three-piece suit. You know, it doesn't mean anything. Just wear what you want to wear. Some people misuse the term, the newness of the spirit to mean, and I like this one, to mean anything that they feel good about. Have you caught this? This can actually lead them to be very confused because they think it's just anything they feel good about. You know what? Listen, there are a lot of teachings out there in the world under the banner of Christianity that is designed just to make you feel good and never cause you to confront any issues and to change in any way. So if there's a ministry they like, then they say, "Well, the spirit's moving in that ministry. I like them, so it must be the Holy Spirit." Well, he might be moving, or it may just be that you like them because they look like you or they talk like you or their style of ministry appeals to you or or you met the guy one time and he made you feel good, so it must be the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It may not be the newness of the spirit because Paul, he's not talking about new stuff versus old stuff oldness of the letter of the law, he's talking about the carnal pre-Christ life. And and the newness of the spirit is the born again walking with Jesus life. That's the difference. So it's, it's positional. One is from the outside in, the other is from the inside out. All right. Verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. But I did not know sin except through the law. I would not have known coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So he's saying some people misunderstand the law. Is the, is the law sin? Well, of course it's not. Uh, some people, upon reading this and hearing this, that, that, sin arou- that the law arouses my sinful past passions they may come to the conclusion that, that that the law is actually the problem. And here I, I think Paul is, is he, he's not just talking about the Old Testament law, by the way. I think he's he's uh, talking about whatever law has been revealed to you, whether it's moral law like the Gentiles have or it's the written law of the Old Testament. And Paul uses the term to refer to both situations in Roman. But, but something bad happens when the law meets my sin, my sinful nature. Uh, and you can, you can see it in real life. I'll give you some examples. For example, what happens when, with, with at least certain people, what happens when people meet wet paint signs? That's right. They touch it to see if it's really wet. And that's what happens when your law meets your sin nature. You walk up to it and it says wet paint. And you're like, hmm, oh. It is wet. You know, that's our sin nature. Now, here's the thing. In that moment, do I blame the wet paint sign? Some people do. Some people, you know, it's like that poor guy who paints the benches. He just can't win. He's like, well, what am I supposed to do? If I don't don't put the sign up, you sit on it and get paint all over yourself. and Then you're mad about that. But if I do put the sign up, you don't believe it and you put marks all over it. So, I mean, is the sign bad? Is, Is the law bad? No, the law is not bad. Let's not blame the wet paint sign. The issue is... That I have a sin nature. I have sinful desires. And when someone tells me not to do something, that's when I find out how much I really want to do it. Therefore, what happens is the law exposes my sin nature. It draws it out. It's like the guy who walks up to a crowd of Christians and he says, I have a joke to tell tell you guys, but it's really bad, so I probably shouldn't. And you're like, okay, well, great, then don't. And then he's like... There is a guy he just can't hold it in he can't stop himself he can't hold it back because there's something in us, in us that says i want what i want and the more i'm told not to do something the more i want to do it the problem isn't the law the problem is me this is how as paul said earlier as we're coming back to this this is this is how he said that this this is how the law arouses my sin nature because what it does is, is, is it accesses what was already there. And, and so the law for some people becomes a laundry list of things to do. It's, it's sort of like the little boy sitting next to a button with a sign that says, do not push button. Everything that's already in that little boy wants to rebel against that sign and push the button just to see what happens. I know that I'm bad because when I'm told not to do something, I I want it that much more. So something must be wrong inside of me. I mean, imagine that you had no awareness of morality of any kind, no awareness in any way. All you have is desires. You have no way of identifying whether these desires are good or whether these desires are bad. You just have the desires and you just do what you want. Then along comes the law. Moral awareness comes. Now, all of a sudden, you can split the things that you want into two categories, good things and bad things. That's what the law does for us. And and when when the law comes now, it reveals to us, as we look at our desires and we look at the law, it reveals to us that we have a lot of desires that fit in the wrong category. So the law reveals to me that I have bad desires. And it reveals to me that when I try to resist these things, that those things are very strong indeed. It comes to the place where, when we realize this, we come to the place where we just cry out, Lord, deliver me. And we'll get there at the end of chapter 7, Lord willing, next week. Verse 9. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What an unusual verse. Not, not only is this verse carrying through the same foundation, foundational teaching of, about who we are and our nature as humans and all that sort of thing, but, but, what, he, but well, what does he mean when he says he was alive once without the law, but the commandment came, sin revived, and he died? Well, the way I understand this verse is it seems to be talking about or implying some sense of age of accountability. Uh, there was a time in his life when he became morally aware and he realized he was not a good person, the, the commandment came, his moral awareness came, and then his sin fought against that as it always does. And, and, and what you tell it not to do, it says, I want to do it. He became aware of this. That, you know, you listen, there's, there's really not much in Scripture when it comes to the idea of whether... Uh, you know, babies are truly innocent. Obviously, they have not committed any actual sins. It's not like, you know, a newborn is, con- you know, before they're born is conceptualizing sin in the in the womb. You know, they're not doing that. They're born and they're screaming because they're cold or hungry or something like that. But they're, they're not thinking lustful thoughts uh, or we're not thinking many thoughts at all, really, at that moment in time. But I believe that children are innocent. Uh, Not by virtue of not having a sin nature, but by not having the opportunity to fully understand right and wrong and then to act on that knowledge. King David talks a little bit about this because he he had a son that died. I'm not going to give you the story we all know. It was after Bathsheba and all that kind of stuff. David said this uh, after his baby died. He said, but now he is dead. Talking about his baby. He said, why should I fast? Am I able to bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, you might think that's a little vague. What in the world does that mean? I mean, did David just mean that he will go to the grave just like his child went to the grave? I don't think so because David had hope that went beyond the grave. Just read the Psalms. He talked about it all the time david knew that when he died he would be eternally in the presence of the lord so he says uh, that he can go to his son so he believes that his son is in the presence of the lord i think that's very comforting for a lot of parents who have lost a young child and uh, i think this verse actually supports that idea let's look at verse 10 there's some stuff a really good stuff i want to get into here and the commandment which was intended for life proved to be death for me How how is the commandment meant to bring life? Well, God gave the law to Israel and he said to them, do this and you shall what? Live. The commandment is to bring life. God says, I'm gonna gonna give you ways of life. It was to bring life, but because he disobeyed, disobeyed it, he found it to bring death. So let's keep reading, verse 11. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed me, through it. That's a fascinating verse to me. Sin uses the law to kill you. If the consequences of committing a crime is the death penalty, then your sin, when you commit that crime, that's the sin, your sin is using the law to kill you. The the sin doesn't kill you directly. It uses the law to do it, so to speak. However, if you obey the law, you live. In other words, if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't have a death penalty, right? If you obeyed all the laws, all the laws of God, if you obeyed all of them, you'd be walking in the paths of life and righteousness, but all have sinned. Therefore, what could have brought life If we could have obeyed it perfectly, what could have brought life instead brought death because death was the consequence of the sin, which is why I need to be delivered from the whole system of the oldness of the letter uh, uh, of of, of trying to earn my salvation by walking in perfect obedience. I have to be delivered from that because I don't do it. I can't do it. He, He adds in there the element of deception because he says, the sin deceived me you know we, we 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 could look at eve and see this was was eve deceived somebody that's yes. <laughs> not a trick question yes <laughs> Somebody like i'm afraid to answer yes she was deceived uh, uh she really thought that she was going to get good stuff out of eating the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil She really believed that. She was deceived. She knew God said not to, but she thought it was somehow going to work out for her differently than what God said. And we're, we're just like that. Sin deceives us into thinking that we are the exception to the rule. So, you know, somebody says, well, we're having sexual relations before marriage, but it's okay because we really love each other. Well, when we think we're the exception to a rule, we have to realize that there's a reason for the rule and that sin deceives me and it tricks me into thinking I can get away with sin, that I can be okay with sin. That's that's why he says, don't be deceived, brethren. Ephesians calls it deceitful lust. But here's here's the interesting, the sad part is I find that people who go into sin trying to fill some hole in their life, some longing, some need that they have, they actually usually lose the thing that they're going after. So the person who says the the scenario I just mentioned, it's okay because we really love each other. That person's probably looking for intimacy. They're looking, they're longing for intimacy. However, what they don't realize is that giving yourself to another person sexually without entering into covenant before God, before marriage, actually works toward destroying trust and therefore destroys true intimacy. You say, well, how does it destroy trust? Well, it's really simple. Uh, Let me just put it like this Uh, speaking to any young lady who may be watching or listening, if he'll do that with you before marriage, he'll do it with someone else outside of your relationship. And if if you say, oh, well, we're going to get married, well, he'll get married to you, but if he'll do it with you before marriage, He'll do it with someone else outside of marriage, outside of your marriage. And that knowledge, knowing that, will destroy trust in your relationship. If he or she is not willing to wait for marriage before taking you to bed, then the question is what constraints are there when he or she gets bored with your relationship and then is tempted by another person? There are no constraints. The young person who desperately wants relationship, and so they get into quick and dangerous or even sinful relationships. They're the ones who in older age have the worst relationships, have the broken relationships, have the hurt relationships. So by, by doing it the wrong way, sin deceived them. Uh, the person who uses, who uses drugs because they want to escape life, while they're escaping life, life is getting way worse while they're using drugs. So they use drugs because they want to improve their life and it ends up destroying their life. The person who steals because they want quick money ends up in ruin. I mean, find me an old rich thief. Good luck with that. The thief in the long run ends up in poverty. Sin deceives us. The guy who's hurting in his marriage and he feels a lack of love from his spouse, so he cheats with, on his spouse and destroys his marriage. How much love is he feeling now? The thing that he thought would heal whatever it was that was wrong with him ended up destroying the very thing for which he was craving. Sin deceives, and then it destroys whatever we're chasing after. Like, I mean, we can go on. A lazy man. A lazy man ends up making a lot more work for himself in the long run through his laziness. Just think of sin after sin after sin where the thing that you're trying to find fails you. The the person at work who says I'm not appreciated around here, so I, I'm just not going to work as hard. And you hear that, and you're like, well, well, that will sure make you more appreciated by your bosses. You know, you're, you listen. You're the guy that's that's going to get passed over for all the promotions and all uh, uh, and all of that because you're discontented and, and and you don't do what the Bible says and be diligent and work hard. On the flip side, the guy who says I'm going to work hard, whether anybody notices it or not. Everybody notices that. It's just really interesting how it works. See, here's the thing. Sin is so deceptive. Sin and rebellion. Hear this. Especially if there's any any young person, hear this. Sin and rebellion always feel like freedom at first. It feels like freedom at first. But then it destroys everything we long for. That's the story of the prodigal son. When he got his inheritance and went out, as I like how I think of the King James says, as he says, he living riotously. That's <laughs> just like that phrase. It's very poetic. When he went out there and he was having a ball, having a blast and, and living up a storm, partying and doing all these things and hiring prostitutes and all this stuff, when he was doing it, I'm sure to him it felt like, Finally, I'm not underneath the thumb of my old man. I'm not out there working in the fields every day for, for nothing. I'm, I'm free. And it felt like freedom at first. But it led him down a pathway where he had nothing, and he got to the place where he was so hungry, he was wanting to eat the slop that the pigs were eating that he was feeding as a Jewish boy. If you don't know what, why that's an ironic thing, we'll talk about it later. See sin always feels like like freedom at first but then it destroys everything that we're longing for sin just backfires over and over and over and over again and the final result is it brings forth death look at verse 12 so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good therefore has that which is good become death unto me god forbid Rather, sin that it might be shown to be sin was working death in me through that which is good, so that, excuse me, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. This is where, this is where we're going to end tonight you know, on this concept. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, is driving in this concept that sin is exceedingly sinful. Sinful, this is where our Christian worldview needs to be grounded. We have to realize that sin is actually very bad you know there there aren't there aren't little lies they're just lies. I mean are some lies worse than others i'm, I'm sure you could say that, but we have to consider every lie as being a seriously bad thing are are some, some sins worse than others sure at least in the sense of comparing one sin to another i mean Honestly, would you rather that I stab you once or stab you 53 times? Well, if you're like me, I'll take the once, but it's still really bad, right? They're, they're all bad. What, what, we, what we have to do is think of it like this. You know, All sin is utterly, exceedingly sinful, yet I recognize that some sins are worse in comparison to other sins. But what we do instead is that we say because this sin is worse than that sin then this sin must be not so bad. It must be okay. That Here's what I want you to understand. That is not a Christian worldview. That is not a biblical concept at all. I should view every sin as utterly sinful. And and, and when I do that, you know what that does? That actually protects me from pride, doesn't it? Because I see sin in others, but I also see it in me too. And now I can't claim that my sin is somehow less evil than yours, and that makes me okay and makes you you bad. Instead, I'm humbled. Sin is utterly sinful. Sin produces death in me. I have to know that. I have to believe that. I have to know uh, and fully and, and firmly believe. That, it, that I cannot harbor sin in me without creating death in me, without destroying the very things that I'm trying to develop and that I long for in my life. As, as James says, when sin is full, full grown, it brings forth death. So tonight's study is probably not the most exciting, but, but this is foundational stuff. And these, these are things that that most Christians would listen to and say, oh yeah, amen, amen. However, there are others who would listen to it, maybe even some people who are Christians, and they'd say, I just just don't know about all that. Really? Are you sure? Well, if that's you, then you're encountering the fact that your worldview is not a biblical worldview, and you need to let the Bible change the way you think. Listen, You can read the Bible from now every day for the rest of your life. But if you don't let it change the way you think, then you're wasting your time. Because it's not about having knowledge up here, but it's about putting the word of God into action in our lives and realizing that it's about salvation, is about a change in our life. Walking in the newness of the spirit is about allowing him to do what he wants and us having that desire to serve and to follow him. Anyway, that's next week we're going to get into "Oh, uh, wretched man that I am, so that ought to be fun. Um, so, but let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in Romans 7. Lord, we just ask you would help us to see the world the way you see it. Help us to, to see the world around us biblically. Help us to think biblically in life, God, because we, we, we might casually have some really unbiblical views that impact our lives in massive ways. So, Lord, Lord give us your word and guide us in your truth and, and let us understand things the way that you do. Let us see the world the way you do. Let us see ourselves the way you do. Let us see sin the way you do. Uh, Lord, let's just help us to see everything the way you do. I I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, use your word to renew our minds because, God, that's how we know. That's that's how you change us. It's through the renewing of our minds. So I pray, God, that you would do that. Help us to be really aware of what it means to walk in the newness of the Spirit. And uh, we just thank you for all of these things. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.